Um, and our Friday profile is a prolific South African artist, acclaimed artist William Kentridge is with us. He's acclaimed for his charcoal drawings, animations, video installations, um, shadow plays, mechanical puppets, tapestry, sculptures. I mean, live performances, operas, in fact. The scope of what he's managed to do with his art over the years is just absolutely mind-boggling. And I was saying earlier on, it's an opportunity for us to kind of try and climb into the mind of uh, William Kentridge as an artist. Recently, or earlier on in the year, he was awarded the Arts and Culture Lifetime Achievement Award for Visual Arts. Um, and uh, this was by the Arts and Culture Trust, which was established in response to a request from former President, um, the late Nelson Mandela. And this was not only to preserve, but to also pres- uh, uh, celebrate the arts in South Africa as a rich part of our heritage. I don't think I have to say much about William Kentridge, but I think needless to say, he has long been and continues to play an integral role in fostering young talent across different genres. And you see this through his presence at art galleries, at the openings of different artists, and through the collaborations that he does and the contributions he continues to make to visual arts um, at places like Artist Proof Studio. And he joins a list of other luminaries like Anki Kroch um, and uh, Spongile Kumalo, Mama Spongile Kumalo, Mama Nomtle uh, Nongkonye, there are just so many artists who've previously been honored and he joins their ranks as well, thanks to the Arts and Culture uh, uh, Trust, the past act trust or the past arts and culture trust i should say so he joins us now on the line and uh, he's in cape town this time around as someone who works all over the world he's on our shores this time good afternoon sir how are you doing i'm well how are you i'm very good thank you it's such a pleasure to talk to you but firstly congratulations on this award thank you so much that's that's very kind of you so well deserved, especially when we think of the various chapters and the scope of your work over the years. I don't even know where to begin. But I remember speaking to someone from uh, Strauss & Co. who described you as really being at the heart of the engine of South Africa's arts industry. Don't mean to make you blush. Yeah, no, no, I am here. Um blushing here. <laughs> um, it's always hard to know what the engine of an arts industry is. I think in South Africa we have quite a small art sector and that's both a blessing and a curse obviously it means there isn't the resources supporting the art that you get in many other countries with an economy the size of South Africa mm-hmm. but it also means there's a sense of solidarity between different artists and across genres, dancers working with visual artists, filmmakers working with actors and it's partly out of necessity that unless they do it themselves there's no institutions that are going to push it towards that. And so there's an openness and a willingness of many actors, artists, performers in South Africa to have an openness to what the work is that they're going to make, to Mm -hmm. allow work to cross genres, to be both half an opera and an oratorio and a piece of documentary evidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that partly comes from having to improvise and make do. Yes. Yes, and we do that well. I think that's why we kind of punch where we punch in the world stage uh, when it comes to 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 the arts. You look at the Biennale, how we uh, how we we've been featured over the past couple of years, and even in other territories, and our representation of contemporary art on the continent. But uh, I'm also curious about how you ended up as an artist. Would you say it was about following what was within 
and what was what what it was calling you to do, and art ended up being uh, in its broadest in, in its broadness and in the way you've explored it being that particular path. I think I mean both my parents were lawyers and very good lawyers, mm. and so it seemed to me that I needed to find a way in the world that was different to that. There was a way in which whatever I was doing was going to be subject to cross-examination by these lawyers around me. And so I needed to find a way of finding meaning in the world that was going to be safe from Mm cross-examination. And so there's a certain point in which the logic of legal reasoning falls apart when confronted with art. Mm. It doesn't have the same needs and logics. And I think that's a fundamental reason why I became an, an artist. I find that it interesting. Was a way of finding my own voice yes. that was not a legal voice. Yes, I find that interesting you know, because, because recently uh, I spoke to William Smith, and he his parents were academics as well, and he did start in academia, but decided to also head in in his own direction to kind of not follow strictly in his parents' footsteps. Yes, I think it skips a generation. So my parents were both lawyers. Uh, I'm certainly not, but my daughter is. And that feels very happy. So there's a conversation between my daughter and her grandfather about matters legal that just sort of jumps over my head, (laughs) which I'm very happy for that to be. To be present around. Yes, and it's a bond they share outside of you. <laughs> yes. Um, yes one thing that's evident about your work and how it's evolved over the years, because you went further than your, your charcoal drawings. You started yes. to use other artistic elements. I mean, we know your yes. films, your animations, video installations. I was at the Zeitsmoka uh, not too long ago and yes. just sat in that room and looked at um, uh, more sweetly play the dance. At the sites. And so you incorporate all sorts of elements into your work. So it's quite clear, uh, looking at your work, that you love to play. How important is that element? So I think play is important, and I think collaboration is important. Those Mm -hmm. are two vital parts of it. And by play, I mean saying, seeing what it is that the work is bringing itself, rather than giving it strict instructions. So it's like playing like the way light plays on water. It's not giving it the rules but responding to what it presents to you. Mm-hmm. So, and then also working with different musicians and actors in a piece like Morsiti Play the Dance. There's an impulse. I knew I wanted shadows walking across a platform. But what they were was so shaped by the movement, by the dancing, by the kind of rhythm of the different performers taking part. By, we brought a huge brass band from um, from Farinach and came into the studio and kind of filled the studio and there's nothing more fantastic than the sound of a big brass band in a really enclosed space. Mm-hmm. It's so much more impressive than when outside. And when we heard that brass band playing in the room, then we knew we were onto something. Yes. And we sort of followed the impulse of that music and filmed the musicians and almost by itself the piece found its heart. And then it's very carefully structured and costumed and edited but the initial impulse is found by being open-ended and seeing what the people you're working with can engender together. Yes, there's something so beautiful about that. And I think there is a lesson in how to live. Uh, I'm not sure if you agree in terms of following the impulse and being curious and um, enamored with the process and rather than fixated on the outcome. Yes, I mean we have a we've, we have a small art center in Mabonnet, Johannesburg, called the Center for the Less Good Idea, and that is saying that you start a project with a grand idea, 
But very often, while you're working on it, all sorts of things emerge from the side, things you hadn't anticipated, Mm -hmm. so-called less good ideas, and that you need to make a space in the center of the project for those to come in, because very often it's in those side thoughts that the heart is really found. So as a strategy, both in my own work and working with collaborators, there's a big space for doubt, for uncertainty, for play, and for responding to what arrives without you having planned it. And I think all the great spiritual teachers would, uh, this is what they teach, that they would certainly agree with you. Uh, uh, so it's beautiful to listen to you talking about that, and it must mean you have great freedom, or it allows you to have a, a great it level of freedom. Al- it does allow great freedom, and I think one thing that 40 years in the studio, 50 years of the studio told me is that almost every good idea or everything that's resulted in interesting work has not been a, as a result of an idea of mine, but something either that I've done inadvertently or something I've done that other people had to show me what I was actually doing. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between the engine working through you that makes things and your own much more limited conscious direction of that. Right. And right. the only hope is to be open to things that come. They're not from nowhere. They come from inside the artist. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're more interesting than the conscious thoughts that are there at the beginning. Absolutely. So would you agree that you are a sort of polymath, like a, a renaissance man? Because with what you do, what you do actually requires an interest in a study of many other different disciplines like mechanics. Well, let it be said that for the mechanics, if it can be made out of cardboard and masking tape and a glue gun and a piece of, and a lappy, I can make it. <laughs> anything more... I need the assistance of experts. So we're working today with the composer in my studio, just taking a break for the interview with Naomi Younger, the great yes. uh, musician. And yes. we've got four huge megaphones that are about two meters high each. Mm-hmm. And he's playing and improvising. We're listening to it in these different megaphones. But to construct these megaphones, that they both have a beautiful sound and they're structurally solid and they balance on their tripods, that is not me. That is very skilled people in my in my studio. I can do a one-minute sketch of the tripod and the megaphone, yeah. and then it takes other people's real expertise to make that happen. Yes, I see. But it does require a level of understanding of what is it going on. A bit, yes, it, it does, and, uh, and an interest in what other people can make. Mm-hmm. So we all push to the edges of our capacities, whether it's the computer programmers working on it or the um, fabricators busy making it or the musicians playing through them. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's going to be pretty magical, and then that'll be these four big megaphones will be part of the exhibition at the Zeitzmocha Museum in Cape Town. Right. Um, let's. I want us to spend a little bit of time also reflecting on an art, you as an artist and your perceptions and thoughts of South Africa, yeah. um, because yeah. always recurring, a recurring theme in several of your work, uh, whether you're reflecting on our history or the histories of yeah. other people around the world as a history scholar, um, there is violent oppression, class struggles, and social po- political hierarchies. You always, you know, include these comments. So you're clearly very sensitive to, to, to injustice in our society. It would be very difficult to have grown up for 40 years under apartheid and not be mm. sensitive to that. I mean, one of the things that does strike me when I'm saying Europe, other places, is that for me it is so natural when you look at any history to find, as well as the triumphant histories that are celebrated in every country, the shameful histories that they want to hide. And I suppose that's because in South Africa we grew up so aware of our shameful ongoing history. Hmm. 
that that, that, that perspective which is open to understanding the dual ways one can see the world feels something that it's a lesson very well taught by growing up in South Africa. Yes. And so that opened us to the fact that there's both, you know, in South Africa today, there's both a pessimistic future and an optimistic future unrolling at the same time. And to say one can only be a pessimist and only an optimist is a sort of a deformation of the world. And I think to hold both of those in one's head is, is vital. It's vital, but I think sometimes it's exhausting. <laughs> it is exhausting. It is exhausting if you try for it not to be the case. Right. But it means one doesn't have to poo-poo everything wonderful and saying, oh, yes, that may be nice, but fundamentally this is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Or to say, oh, we can't say that's a disaster because I saw this beautiful other project happening there. Mm-hmm. But to understand both of these are unfolding. And as you know, in South Africa there are, you know, for every scoundrel and piece of corruption there are people working extremely hard to make to make our whole project work yes and it's an ongoing battle and to find history that's that is being made rather than that is for for ordained yes that's it and i guess to find a place where you're able to straddle and live between the two instead of resisting them as you say i think that's a huge lesson especially for people like us who work in the media who have to look at the ugly and always remember to draw in the beautiful and the the thing about your work is that you don't shy away from the brutality of our society and our country um and there is certainly aspects of our society that would want us to have an a, a sort of amnesia about our past. Yes. I, th- I mean, I think that if you look at what we did in 1994, 96, or 96, 98 with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it reconciled people or that it, uh, it resolved any of the problems, but to have put on the agenda, say, let us look at our past and make that part of our national conversation, which it still is, mm-hmm. was a remarkable, a remarkable achievement. I think it was an over-ambitious thought that this process in itself could bring about uh, a kind of the healing of all wounds. Mm. But it certainly meant that we didn't just sweep things under the carpet. Mm-hmm. And many countries have taken 40 years, 60 years, or never confronted their painful past. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, you know, I've seen you at uh, different arts events, you know, is from the yes. distance in the crowd somewhere and, you know, you, you, you continue yeah. to be a patron of the arts in your presence and in your support yeah. uh, and in various ways, like I was describing earlier on. Yeah. And you explore an exp- you, you explore very intense themes with great passion through yeah. your work, but you yourself seem very calm and contained you know and not the explosive sorts and often artists i imagine to be that and quite cool and calm um i think there is when one when you're in the studio you're working with actors and it heats up and then things do get hotter yeah but this is a quiet moment of reflection on the wireless so, <laughs> so if we were to visit you in the studio, we would see the explosions. There'd be things which are then more chaotic and more uh, random and less less ordered. Yes, yes. <laughs> and as I said, this I, I did uh, preface that by saying this was really from a brief study or brief, yes. yeah, a brief glance. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> um, there's I a... open the door for one moment and you can hear a little bit of the music being made. Yes. Oh, we can hear that. Can you tell me more about that project, this collaboration you're doing yes. with Neil Munyang? So, 
here. So there's a, in the Zeitzmoker Museum in Cape Town, there's a huge atrium. Mm-hmm. And for the exhibition I do, they were doing not a sculpture, but a sound sculpture. So I've invited five South African composers to write pieces of music that will be played on, played on these four very large megaphones echoing around the mm-hmm. space. Yes. And Kai Shepard is another, and Philip Miller, and Tantra Mashlangu, and Waldo Alexander, the, all who work in very different ways with different music. And so it's like a mini concert that will be played, will be played in this atrium a couple of times a day. Mm-hmm. As part, so even transforming that the space. Exhibition, yeah. The exhibition is called Why Should I Tremble? Mm-hmm. Why Should I Hesitate? Not why should I tremble, why should I hesitate? And that'll be on in August. In August. Between the Norval Foundation and the Zatzmarker in Cape Town. Right. Which is a big project that the studio is working on now, getting all the components of that together. Mm, I can't wait for that in uh, August. And then uh, the art piece itself, is it also going to see the inclusion of some of the usual elements that you've always included? Uh, the exhibition has many. It's video installations, it's mm-hmm. animated films, it's drawings, sculptures, um, yeah, tapestries, prints. It's, uh, it's like one of those 18-course Edwardian dinners, which you feel a little bit bilious about <laughs> even before you've sat down at the table. <laughs> so it is, a bit too, it is a bit too much, but it's about kind of the excess that happens in the studio, that so many different things come out of another thing. So it's, it's allowing that... Um, that range of things to be shown in one exhibition. Yes. And how is it, imp- how important is it to be able to discard? You just, just described excess right now when yeah. you, you want to take it all, your gladness about what you keep. Yes. I mean, I think what I discovered is that there are very often things which at the time I think, oh, this is no good. I should check this out. Mm. And some things get checked out. But sometimes if they're not checked out, a few years later I'll come across them and say, oh, I can see why I didn't like it, but in fact there are things in there that I didn't recognize and give it the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. So things do get thrown out, but usually after a while of hanging around the hanging around the studio, and I can't always tell when something starts, is this something that's going to be of real interest or is this something that's a, a dead-end journey that should be abandoned very quickly? Um so there's more stuff than there should be, I'm saying. Yes, yes. But that's the cost of allowing things to find their place. You know, I've interviewed a number of artists in the past, and they also talk about that, revisiting, keeping, and revisiting something you had done uh, previously. Is yeah. there work that has haunted you, or do you find that you haunt the work until it starts to kind of take the shape that you can see beauty in, or see common no, important it's commentary? Much, it's, much worse, it's much worse than that. <laughs> you think each time you're starting a drawing that you're going to be making something new, and then after weeks of work, you look at it and you say, damn, but I did this 17 years ago, something similar to this. Right. So you think you're finding a new image, but the range to find something that is genuinely new is rare and hard. Mm-hmm. It can't be done by an act of will. So I think there is a lot of that, the sense of repetition of going back and doing work that's not the same, but that hovers around, that circles the same itch that you can't quite scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's a particular image, an image of a rhinoceros that comes into a thousand or a coffee pot or a megaphone that comes into many words. They both become a kind of vocabulary and a group of actors waiting to perform whatever you want them to perform. Yes. But they do also push towards longer term themes that are there waiting to come out in the work. Mm. Hmm. So would you say, after all these years of uh, doing the work that you've been doing, that your art philosophy or your, yes, your art philosophy is 
is more solid than ever? I don't know if it's more solid, but I have I have more confidence in some of the things which started as hesitant assertions, mm-hmm. like giving, uh, making a safe space for doubt, making the studio a place where stupidity can have its space of not knowing what you're doing, mm-hmm. and of allowing the work to find itself rather than you knowing exactly what it is from the beginning. So those strategies which I was uncertain about, I'm still uncertain, but much less uncertain. Yes. Uh, just experience has shown that the most interesting things often need that process. Right. There always has to be a stage where you're awake at four in the morning in a panic, thinking none of this holds together, and all the elements of what you're working on float in the air above the bed or sit on the branches around you with all your anxieties. Mm-hmm. But in fact, this floating of them up into the air again is very often a necessary stage of finding a place where they will come down to land. Yes. And the understanding that in most cases they do come down in the end. I just love that as a philosophy of life, not just art. Um, Felicity Harty has sent us a WhatsApp saying, please ask Mr. Kentridge how this amazing project along the banks of the River Tibber was inspired. Yeah. Uh, the highlight of all my art viewing when I came across this. Uh, so this is just to explain to your listeners this is a piece called Triumphs and Laments. It's a frieze mm-hmm. along the stone walls of the edge of the river that goes through the middle of Rome, the Tiber. Mm-hmm. And it's 500 meters long. And there are about 80 figures drawn uh, along this wall. Yes. And they're of Roman and Italian history, but they're of Triumphs and Laments. They're parts of Roman history that should be celebrated and are the very shameful elements of Rome's history. And they were made not by drawing on the wall, but by washing the dirt off. So the walls are very dark from bacteria and pollution, the white travertine stone walls. And so instead of drawing on top of that, what we did is wash the background away from the figures with a high-pressure hose. Hmm. So what you left with are silhouetted figures, but which are the darkness of the wall. And then over years, over four or five or seven years, the wall gets darker again with the pollution and the bacteria and the figures disappear into the wall. Yes. And then it's like a clean blackboard. Somebody else can draw on it. It's a masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece. And it it looks, now three years down the track where a lot of the images have gone back in towards the wall and the wall has got darker. It really is at its most beautiful where they're half there, not Mm. completely there. Ah, great time to be able to see it then. I want to thank you and congratulations once more for for the Lifetime Achievement Award. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Very nice talking to you. That was the artist, award-winning and prolific South African artist, William Kentridge, joining us on the line. Felicity, there you have it. And thank you for your question. And he was recently awarded the Art and Culture Lifetime Achievement Award for Visual Arts earlier on this year. And as he says, he's working on a great project. Collaboration is at the heart of what he does uh, that you'll be able to see at the Zeitzmoker, which is an incredible space on its own. The way they carved out the heart, the middle, the center of those silos and created a just architecturally it's a masterpiece itself and is a great uh, um, uh, museum uh, or rather gallery I should say it's going to be a must see a must experience in August of this year